Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Um, Laura, I'm going to shift things a little bit, so don't be nervous. It'll be fine. Uh, we'll get through it together. Just kind of want to move a little bit more quickly through it this morning. Ephesians chapter six is where we'll be. We're wrapping up our series. Let me give us a couple of announcements as we transition uh, into this. Uh, Christmas is coming up. This is the last week of our Ephesians series. So let me just say this. We haven't finished anything in 2020. Uh, we didn't finish a school year. You didn't finish a, f- a soccer season. Uh, you didn't, we haven't finished a virus. We can't even finish an election. Uh, we haven't finished anything in 2020, but today we get to finish a series through the book of Ephesians, and that should be celebrated 13 weeks long. We went through this. Some of you are clapping because it's over. Don't, don't cry because it's over. Uh, cry because it happened. I don't know, whatever that yearbook quote is. Anyway, uh, so next week we start a new series called The Advent of Christ, just studying the first coming of Jesus. We're going to do it uh, through Revelation. Revelation chapter 12 is where we'll start next week, which will be fun. Uh, but December 4th and 5th is our drive through Christmas. If you want to drive through our parking lot, even this morning, you can see the beginnings of things starting to form and take shape. It's pretty exciting. A group of men, Daryl's been leading, have been working terribly hard back there. Allison's been working to lead. Um, Marie Ayers has been sewing costumes uh, until she, till she bleeds in her fingers. So thank you for all that. It's coming. Be in prayer for that. Our prayer is not that we have a bunch of people who just like it and have fun, but that people hear the gospel uh, the good news of Jesus through that. So we'll be praying for that. Ladies, uh, December 7th, that next Monday is the ladies' Christmas tea. You can go to SharonChurchChristmas.com and find out more information there. And let me just share this with you. We did the Operation Christmas Child for bringing in shoeboxes. Uh, we shot for 800. We didn't get it 800, though. We got 815 shoeboxes came in. Uh, so we can celebrate that. And again, that's... That's not about shoeboxes and trying to fit things into boxes. That's about the gospel of Jesus Christ going to people who have never heard it before. And these kids get to hear the gospel, that their families might be transformed by the good news of Jesus. This stuff matters, uh, what we're doing. We're not just celebrating because we reached some mark. We're celebrating the 815 kids get to hear the gospel. So that's a thing to be celebrated. All right, Ephesians chapter six. Let's finish this thing up and finish it up well this morning. Um, Paul is gonna wrap everything up for us. And he wants us to make sure, as his parting words, as he leaves, that we, that we don't miss the point. That can happen sometimes, ever happen. Uh, sometimes if you're telling somebody something, maybe you're telling your kids something, maybe you're a teacher and you've got some parting words or whatever it is. There's something you, don't miss this, so you say it at the end, but often we just kind of forget, we miss, we miss the point. Paul does not want us to miss the point, I'm sorry, of the book of Ephesians, the letter to the church at Ephesus. So it's Put some things in context. Remember, we know more about this church than we know about any other church in Scripture. We know about its beginning, its birth in, in the book of Acts. We see its demise in Revelation chapter 2. We see visits that Paul has made here. We, we know a lot about the leadership here. It's, uh, the leaders are people like Paul and then Timothy and, and John. Like It's strong, strong leadership. We know of some problems within the church. We know that ultimately Revelation 2 tells us they will abandon their first love. They will move away from the gospel. They'll move away from the freedom of confession and repentance and and freedom, and they'll move away from that into some worldly pursuit. They'll neglect uh, the truth of the gospel. 
We know that uh, Paul had to visit with the elders pretty early on because he was leaving. He had left, but he knew that coming behind him, there were going to be wolves, fierce wolves looking to devour the sheep. And the wolves were bringing with them false teaching from within the church. Paul, speaking to the elders, said, in fact, some of you will begin to teach false things within the church. Beware of the wolves, he says. So as Paul finishes this letter to the church at Ephesus, he's gonna go back to some of that thinking to remind them that I've said all of these things, but we have to make sure to keep the gospel priority. We gotta keep it priority. In the 1800s, 1884, uh, there was a book written by a guy named Edwin Abbott, who was a, who was a mathematician, who wrote a, a romance novel called The Flatland. I don't know many mathematicians that write romance novels, but I'm sure they're very sweet. Uh, but he, he wrote this one called Flatland, and the premise is um, it's a two-dimensional world lived by a bunch of flat Stanleys, if you read kids with, books with your kids. Uh, two-dimensional characters who are then um, come in contact with some three-dimensional characters and then even some four-dimensional characters. It's a whole dissertation on women's rights and things. But the whole, the whole point of it uh, that I want to take it from that is this, is that we, if we live in only a two-dimensional world, the point he makes is when a third dimension comes in contact with the two-dimensional world, the only way to explain a third dimension to two-dimensional people is with two-dimensional language. Does that make sense? Uh, we, we don't have, in our world, so we, we are living in a kind of a three-dimensional world. Uh, the Bible speaks of a different dimension, of a heavenly place that Paul references in Ephesians 2 and 3. Heavenly places, uh, the, the wars going on between good and evil in, in heavenly places. And we run out of ways to explain to us as humans that there are other things going on. And the only things that we can use are our words and our language. And so it creates a bit of extreme from time to time. Like we, we run to some really extreme uh, charismatic places. We run to some very uh, extreme cessationist kind of places. We go all the way to the exorcist and we see pea soup everywhere, which exorcisms are true when they happen, then we go all the way to, well, that's no, not really a thing. It doesn't really happen. That's just made up. It's all fantasy. Well, Paul is pretty clear that it's not fantasy, that these are things that are actually happening. And Paul wants to orient our perspective around another dimension because he has given us the truth of the gospel in chapters one through three. He's reminded us that God chose us before the foundation of the world. It's by grace through faith that we are saved, not works of our own, lest any man should boast. He told us that we are uh, to protect, maintain the unity of the church that's found in the gospel, found in the good news of Jesus. And in doing so, we declare to the heavenly places that the ways of God are better than the ways of the world. Uh, he shifts into walking in love. And this is, how, this is how Christians, if we're walking in the spirit, here's how we do marriage. Here's how we raise our kids and how we are raised by our parents. Here's how we handle our business interactions. Here's, here's how we live our lives. So Paul's gonna be careful at the end uh, that he doesn't leave with, with um, three, three lines in a poem here at the end. He's gonna give us some deep, overarching, perspective-shifting truth for us. There's a chalk artist in... Um, Great Britain named Julian Beaver, and he writes perspective oriented chalk or draws perspective oriented chalk art. I'm going to show you some pictures. So, this is some stuff that he does. Um, this is just from one perspective. And if you see the next slide, you're going to see the perspective he wants you to have. So, these chalk artists um, draw, it's very mathematical, geometrical. But the way to see their art can only be seen from the perspective of the artist. If you see it from any other perspective, it's distorted and we miss it. You can show the next one. 
It's a snail, we think. And then the next perspective from Julian's perspective is this. And then the last one. And this. Now the dog isn't seeing it from the right perspective because he's still there. So the point I want to make is this, is that um, God, the artist, has written the world, has created everything in such a way that the best way to see what he has done is from his perspective. Anything not from his perspective will be a distortion of reality. And because for many of us, particularly in the West, and as Americans, we've refused to see the world from his divine perspective, things have become distorted, particularly in the realm of spiritual warfare. Has become distorted. And so we either overemphasize or we underemphasize God's biblical perspective on the world. And so Paul wants to orient us around that. Secondly, where we've lost our perspective is the role of our effort in the church or in salvation, in sanctification. We, uh, we accept the gospel as a way to save us, and we, then we neglect the gospel as a way for us to grow or to be sanctified. The biblical perspective is the same way that you are saved is the same way that you are sustained or the same way that you are sanctified. And Paul's gonna make sure that the church at Ephesus, he's trying to make sure that they don't drift. But we've even taken this passage, we've done it out of context to make it say something that it shouldn't. So let's go to Ephesians chapter six. We're gonna start in verse 10. We're gonna move quickly through it. So take notes if you can. Um, You can email me later for questions. Ephesians chapter six, verse 10, Paul says, finally, this word finally, it's not therefore, it's a different trans uh, um, motion here. Finally, I'm gonna wrap it all up. I've been trying to get to this, finally this destination, finally, be strong. If you circle or underline this phrase, in the Lord, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Paul just gave us ways to behave, ways to live in marriage, in child rearing, and in our business interactions. And he's now not going to say, so then do it. So then try hard. So then do these three things that all start with the same letter. He's not saying that. So then finally, you gotta be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. We cannot engage in the gospel. We cannot engage in the mission of the church in our own might. You and I cannot engage in our own sanctification, our own growth as followers of Jesus in our own strength, in our own might, which is why Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. He's gonna tell us how in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Paul says, put on the whole armor of God. So circle that armor of God. We're gonna come back to that. He's gonna say it again in a couple verses. But first I wanna approach why we need the armor of God. Why? Like why, what are we engaging in that we need armor? If you've ever gone to play paintball before and you're like, oh, this is gonna be so much fun. Like the first time going to play paintball, you're like, it's gonna be so much fun. I'm gonna play paintball. Then like, hey, before you play, you gotta sit through this hour-long seminar of how to not let your eyeball get shot through the back of your head while you play. You're like, I'm just coming, what? I'm coming to play. I don't understand. I could die doing this? Yes, so wear this mask. Don't do this. Don't do whatever. Um, Paul here is gonna say, we're engaging in war, so you're gonna have to put on the right things. I think too many of us Uh, We approach our Christianity, we approach our church attendance and our church membership and raising our kids and our marriages in a way like you would approach paintball the first time, like, oh, it's just gonna be so much fun and I'll show up if I want to and do whatever I can. And Paul said, no, 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 you could lose an eye. 
So you're gonna have to put on the right armor. Following Jesus is serious business, which is why Jesus would say, count the cost before you decide to follow me. It's not just fun and games. You are engaging in warfare. So now we have to have armor because we have to stand against the schemes of the devil. That word schemes in the Greek is where we get the word method. Uh, he has methods. The devil has methods. In context, it is, um, it's like a dishonest scheme. So think Italian mafia, mob boss, scheming uh, against the schemes of the devil. Well, what are the schemes of the devil? There's something called the theology of first mention. Throughout scripture, if you don't know fully about something or someone, try to find in the Bible where it's first mentioned. And there, you'll probably find the raw truth of that person or that attribute of God, whatever it is, you're gonna find it in first mention. Well, the devil is first mentioned in Genesis chapter three. You can turn there if you want to in your Bibles, but it'll also be on the screen. I wanna, I'm gonna show us the schemes of the enemy, the schemes of the devil. God has created the world, the Garden of Eden. Everything is as it should be. He would say that it is good, a very Hebrew way of saying it's perfect, it's whole, it's complete. And in this garden, there's a tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And God says, Adam and Eve, you can eat of anything you want, just not this tree. But in this garden, there is the serpent, there is the devil. Genesis chapter three, verse one says, the serpent was more crafty, more of scheming than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. And the serpent said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now here's the beginning of the scheme of the devil. It's consistent in some ways. And here's how it's consistent. Uh, first of all, he will twist the words of God. He will distort the words of God. And he will do so in such a way that will make you answer the questions the enemy is asking. Notice, he doesn't say anything about God here. He just gets Eve to consider that what she thinks about God may not actually be true. Now, God didn't say not to eat of any tree in the garden, and Eve knows that. We're gonna see that in verse two. And the woman said to the serpent, well, no. No, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle, the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. God never said not to touch it. But what's happened is the scheme of the devil is I'm gonna distort God's words in such a way that there's a crack, there's a crack in your trust of, of his character. And in doing so now, then this subtle shift of, oh, that's right, God said we shouldn't even touch it, lest you die. And the serpent says to the woman in verse four, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like him, knowing good and evil. The serpent says, you're not gonna die. The problem is God doesn't want you to have all he has. The problem is God's holding out on you. And you thought that God loved you. You thought that he's given you all good things. Then why hasn't he given you this? Well, I'll tell you why. Because he's holding out on you. Because he doesn't love you like he think, you think he loves you. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been to the place where all the devil has to do is plant a seed of doubt in your mind? Did God actually say that? I mean, did God, did God actually, that's what he wants for you? And then it turns into... Oh, God's holding out on me. Wow, he must not love me. He's not who he says that he is. So as her mind now is um, the perspective of God in the heavenly places has been distorted. The, the perspective of God in the supernatural has been distorted. All she has to lean on is her natural vision. Look at verse six. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desired to be desired to make one wise. So now, because she can't trust the supernatural, all she has is the natural. 
Because she can't trust the spiritual realm, she now has to trust flesh and blood. It's all she can see. She took of its fruit and ate. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. The eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Again, because all she can see is the natural and now in the natural, we see discrepancy. We see differences. We see embarrassment. We see shame. We see guilt and nakedness and they cover themselves. <clears throat> the work of the enemy, the devil, he distorts the words of God so that he can distort our view of God. This is the, this is the trick of the enemy that he will distort the words of God that he might distort our view of God. And once our view of God is distorted, it begins to shape everything back around. Now his words are even more distorted. Now we can't believe anything. Once the enemy plants the seed of dissatisfaction in us, once he plants the seed that God isn't who he claims to be, that he isn't for you, that he isn't loving, he isn't kind, then it shifts our character, our view of his character. And at that point, we find ourselves prey to all sorts of unrighteousness and sin. Because can you imagine if we were actually satisfied in God, if we were actually satisfied in who God is, that we actually believed that he is who he says he is, would you and I veer off of the path? Never. The enemy knows. The enemy knows, hey, if you actually believe God to be who he is all the time, the enemy has no shot at you. So he's gonna distort the words of God that he might distort our view of God. So it's consistent. The scheme of the enemy is to distort the words of God. And he may be doing that right now for you. Maybe this week he's distorted some words for you. And by the grace of God, you're here this morning. So that's what's consistent. But what's different is this. First Peter chapter five, verse eight, uh, Peter says to be sober-minded, which is just good wisdom for us as Christians generally, to be sober-minded. Be watchful, be alert. Your adversary, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So while the scheme of the devil is consistent, how that manifests is tailor-made. As a lion prowls around, what he is looking for in his, in his victim is weakness. He's looking for weakness or uh, his, his victim to lie down, his victim to be away from the pack. That's what he's looking for. He prowls around. The idea here is that he is taking his time. The schemes of the enemy are tailor-made and the enemy is patient. He just prowls. He just lurks for the moments of weakness that he might pounce because he's seeking someone to devour. So what that means is this. The way that the, that the enemy will distort the words of God to me might be different than how he does to Meredith, my wife, or to you, or to your kids. The things that we are firm in, that we are confident in about God, the enemy knows he's gonna have a hard time shaking that truth. But if there's some other weakness caused through our upbringing, caused through the way that we are created mentally, caused through our own aversions or our own addictions, he's gonna pounce. In the book, The Screw Tape Letters, written by C.S. Lewis, which is just a beautiful kind of analogy of, of this idea of spiritual warfare, uh, the, the character of the devil, Satan, is telling his minions, his demons, hey, the best way to lure them away is through slow, methodical steps over a long period of time. 
It's like we talked about last week. We just take our eyes off of Christ for a bit and then we find ourselves somewhere we never meant to be. The schemes of the devil are often not overt, but there's a war going on. There's a battle for our souls. And so we have to put on the armor of God. Look at verse 12. The reason why we need the armor of God is because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, which would be a good name for a book, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, Paul's reference to heavenly places, if you remember, Jewish way of thinking, there's three levels of atmosphere. You've got the ground, which is called the air. Uh, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He can affect everything here with flesh and blood. He's in. Then you got the cosmic powers, kind of the, or cosmic, the universe, stars, moon, galaxies. Then above that's what's called the heavenly places. It's where Jesus sits with his enemies as the footstool. It's where spiritual warfare happens. Revelation 12, we'll read about it uh, next week. It's where that's happening. It's where angels are. All that's in the heavenly places. <clears throat> and Paul is saying, you need the armor of God because the war we're fighting is not a flesh and blood battle. You don't need human armor. You need armor of God armor. You need God's armor because the battle is in heavenly places. Here's what Paul is telling us. There is something going on behind whatever is behind what is going on. We don't like to admit this because we want people to pay. We want people uh, to be responsible. But there's something going on behind whatever is behind what is going on. Psychology, sociology, will be able to tell you what's going on behind what's going on. It will tell you um, why you have frustrations. Your counselor will be able to counsel you through, well, there's something behind that, right? It might be from uh, your dad when you were growing up. It could be from a coach. It could be from how you're wired. There's something going on behind that. But biblically, what Paul is saying that even behind that, there's a whole other layer that we're missing. It's all the perspective God has that there's something going on behind whatever is behind what is going on. So it's not just that you are prone to alcoholism. There's something behind that. And what's behind that is there's an enemy who's prowling around like a lion, seek, lion seeking whom he may devour. Does that make sense? The reason why uh, your kids struggle with what they struggle with, the, the reason why your kids can't just be obedient, the reason why they don't trust you as their father has something underneath that. But what's underneath what's underneath that is the fact that there's an enemy. There's a war going on in the heavenly places. And there's a battle going on for the souls of our children, for our marriages, for our workplaces, and for our churches. And so Paul is making the point there's something further down than what we're paying attention to. So like in the flatlands, he only has our language to explain to us. So he says in the next verse, verse 13, therefore, because of that, because there's something going on behind uh, whatever's going on behind what's going on, Paul says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Now here's, here's just exhibit A about how we distort the words of God. Here's what we've done. We've taken the next few verses and we've created flannel graphs and we've created charts and we've created children's curriculum all based upon the pieces of this armor. And we've looked at um, all kinds of cultural evidence and context of, well, what would a Roman centurion wear in this culture? What would the armor have been like? Would he had this kind of shoes and that kind of shoes? There were spikes in the shoes. Sure, all of those things. But we're missing the point that Paul has made from the, through the entire book of Ephesians. You can't so God did. That's the point of Ephesians. By grace you are saved through faith. It's not of our own. 
lest any man should boast. We are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that all we must do is walk in them. You are chosen before the foundation of the world. This is the whole point of the book of Ephesians. So he's not going to end with, so therefore, do your best. So therefore, have a quiet time. So therefore, show up at church more. No, no, no. What Paul is saying is we can't fight heavenly battles with earthly weapons. We need the whole armor of God. So quickly, I want to show you this armor of God. Well, yes, I think it's good morally. It gives us good lessons. There's good things to be learned from it. Contextually, this is rooted in, in the Old Testament. The prophet Isaiah will tell us all about every single piece of this armor, but it's not our armor. It's the armor God has given to the Messiah to wear as he comes to earth, which we'll study next week at Christmas time. So let's look at verse 14. Therefore, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Now again, is it wrong to teach our kids don't lie, tell the truth? No, we should teach them this. But this is rooted somewhere else. This is rooted in Isaiah chapter 11, where Isaiah the prophet is talking about the coming of the Messiah. And he says, the Messiah, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. And immediately you say, well, that's his righteousness, not truth. It can't be right because that's how the enemy is gonna distort the words of God. Well, here's what's interesting. Old Testament written in Hebrew, New Testament written in Greek. There's a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. When Greek scholars translated the Hebrew word righteousness from Isaiah chapter 11, you know what word they used in the Greek? The same word Paul uses in Ephesians chapter six for the belt of truth. So we could say, truth shall be the belt of his waist. So what belt is it? It was Jesus' belt. It's his. He's already worn it. We continue in, in verse 14 of Ephesians chapter six, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So again, now we shift into, well then, you have to be righteous. You have to be obedient, always do right living. This is how you defend yourself. Is that true? Absolutely, 100%. And I think that's a good layer of which to teach. Contextually though, this is referring to Isaiah chapter 59, verse 17. Another vision of Isaiah seeing the Messiah. He says he put on righteousness as a breastplate. So when we put on the whole armor of God, we got Jesus' belt and we have his breastplate of righteousness, which is good because if you had to depend upon your righteousness to defend your vital organs, would you still be alive? I wouldn't. My breastplate is so Swiss cheesy, there's, there's no way it's safe for me to wear in battle. But thankfully, I don't depend upon my righteousness to save me or sanctify me. I depend upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's his righteousness we put on. Our righteousness is as filthy rags, the Old Testament tells us, okay? Ephesians chapter six, let's go to verse 15. <clears throat> and you put on his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Well, the only place this is referenced at all is in Isaiah chapter 52, and he, the prophet says, how beautiful on the mountains, upon the mountains are the feet of him, the Messiah, who brings good news, who publishes peace. It's the only place in all of scripture. Shoes, peace, and good news are referenced together as somebody wearing them, and it's only the Messiah. Now, should we teach our kids, put on the gospel on your feet that you might go share the gospel? Yes, 100%, absolutely. 
But in context, this is not about our effort. This is about us putting on the shoes that Jesus wore. What would Jesus wear? That'd be a good bracelet. Verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Well, Isaiah references it, and um, so does the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 30, verse five. He, God, is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Throughout the Old Testament, the only shield we have is the Lord. It's only God. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Again, it's not my shield of faith. I can't even have faith if it wasn't for God. Ephesians 2, verses eight and nine. It's by grace you have saved through faith, and this faith is not even of your own. It's a gift of God. So if I'm trusting my faith to be a shield, I'm in trouble. Verse 17, uh, Paul says, take the helmet of salvation. Put on the helmet of salvation. Isaiah 59, 17, the Messiah puts a helmet of salvation on his head. Whose helmet am I wearing? Jesus' helmet. His salvation. And he continues in verse 17, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Isaiah 49, 2 the prophet uh, speaking of Jesus in his words, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. Revelation tells us when Jesus returns again, he will have a mouth of a, of a sword coming out of his mouth. So what word is it? Well, it's Jesus' words. This is what we defend ourselves with. So let me just say this. The whole point that Paul is trying to make at the end of the book of Ephesians is the same point he made in chapter one and in chapter two and in chapter three. You can't, so God did. So what fools would we be to then start putting on our armor as if that's the way we're gonna engage in the battle in the spiritual places? We can't. We don't need natural flesh and blood armor. We need holy armor of God armor to engage in this battle. So here is, point in case, here is the armor we need. When we engage in the battle of the enemy, he's prowling around like a roaring lion. To stand firm, what do we need? We need the gospel. We need a sure understanding of the finished work of Jesus Christ. We need the gospel. You want to fight for health in your marriage? You want to have a good, thriving marriage? Then you need to know the gospel. Because the gospel tells you a few things. First, it tells you something about yourself, that you're not perfect. And because you're not perfect, you should be humble. And because you're humble, you can submit. It tells you that you're not perfect, that you aren't in charge, you aren't settled, so then you must submit to the leadership of Jesus. And it tells you that your spouse isn't perfect, but by the grace of God, her sins have been forgiven. Now, the armor of the world says, hey, grab this book, listen to this podcast, go to this seminar, which is good, and it will will help you for a few years. But it's the eternal power of the gospel that preserves our marriages and our children and our workplaces and our churches against the flaming darts of the enemy. Does that make sense? It's the gospel that sustains. It's not our effort. It's the gospel that sustains. This is what we need. Continuing into verse 18, we put that on, and then Paul says, praying at all times in the Spirit. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Uh, In the spirit, we need to talk about what this means. In the spirit quickly just means, Paul has told us the spirit is the deposit, the assurance of our sonship. It's the inheritance we have as sons and daughters of God. When we pray in the spirit, means that we pray as the children of God. I don't know what your kids are like. Maybe your kids are different. Uh, My kids are super needy. Like they're really needy. It's like they need me for everything. 
Uh, they need Meredith and I to make them dinner. They need us to uh, wash their clothes, to wake them up. When they were babies, it's like, just go do this on your own. Why do you, what, are you, what are you doing? Why are you asking me for things all the time? Well, it's because they're my kids and they know they can trust me. If they're gonna ask me for something, then I'm gonna help them. So when Paul says to pray at all times in the spirit, what he's saying is talk to God like your five-year-old talks to you. You know, Kason, our seven-year-old, has no frame of reference that I might be busy. He has no idea to understand that I might be doing something else, that I can't handle what he needs me to do right now. Gosh, I wish I had that with God. I wish I could just be like, God, I'm, I know you're busy right now, but I don't. What Paul's saying is, hey, as his sons and daughters, with an earnestness, with a settledness and a sealedness, you've been adopted, we can go to him. Prayer is the most overt expression of our dependence upon God that we have. You wanna tell me you have faith in God and that you pray once a week? I'll call you a liar. No, you don't. Person devoted to the gospel is a person who prays. And praying like a child has no formula, no magic words. You don't have to say theological things. You say, Daddy, I need you. I need you. That's what it means to pray in the Spirit. With all prayer and supplication, supplication is literally a list of requests. God, I need these things. How do we fight war? How do we wage war against the enemy who prowls around like a lion? How do we, how do we stand firm? We exhibit our dependence upon God through prayer and supplication. We pray. Verse 18, to that end, Paul says, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Don't just pray for yourself, pray for the church. Pray for us, we're all engaging in battle. Pray for us, and Paul says, pray for me also, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. If I'm Paul, I say, hey, pray for me also. Pray that I get out of here quickly. Pray that God sets me free. I don't, it's just prison, I don't like it. Also at this time, you know who's the emperor of Rome? Nero. Uh, Nero does not like Christians. He hates them. Nero takes Christian people and he puts them on a stake, a pole, and then he lights them on fire so he can light all of his festivities. So when Paul says we don't fight against flesh and blood, what he's saying is that guy means nothing to me. I've got bigger fish to fry. How do you do that? Well, only through the gospel. Only through being settled in the gospel. Verse 20, I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let me wrap us up quickly in this way. Do you know the gospel of Jesus? Like the full gospel. We were once dead in our sins and trespasses. But God, who made us alive in Christ together with him, has seated us in the heavenly places. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of your own. It's a work of God, lest any man should boast. And he has created good works. We are his workmanship. He created good works uh, for us to do that he created beforehand that we might walk in them. Do you know the gospel, the good news of the finished work of Jesus? And does it apply to you on a Tuesday? Does it matter on Tuesday? Or does it just matter on Sunday when Joel's up here leading us in, in songs? Or does the gospel matter in your marriage? Does the gospel matter with your kids? Does, it, does your gospel matter in your cubicle or in your classroom tomorrow? Does it matter? Does the gospel matter? 
So we have to, first of all, distinguish the voice of God for us. We have to distinguish the voice of God and not the voice of the enemy. The voice of God speaks the truth. The voice of the enemy speaks lies. Do you know the voice of God? There's only one way to know the voice of God. It's to be with God. I had another point in here that I'm gonna move past because I don't think it helps us. We have to distinguish the voice of God. John chapter 15 says that we must abide in him. To abide means to live with, to do life with, to move in with him. I think many of us, we haven't distinguished the voice of God. We don't know what's God and what's the enemy because we're not actually living with God. We have visitation, so we show up once a week. But I don't know if we're actually abiding in him. The call isn't um, check the box and do Bible study. It's you get to spend time with God today through his word. Abide in him. Abide And then finally, we have to declare the gospel. When we abide in Christ, we must declare the good news of the finished work of Jesus. And it begins with declaring the gospel to ourselves. One theologian says that we must preach the gospel to ourselves daily. Now, uh, this isn't self-talk. This isn't Oprah. This isn't you as good, you as kind, you as important. This isn't looking yourself in the mirror, splashing water on yourself, slapping your cheeks, saying, go get them, get this presentation done. It's not what this is. This is looking yourself in the eyes and saying, by grace, you are saved through faith. It's not of your own. You look at yourself in the eyes in seasons of want and in seasons of plenty, and the gospel is true on the mountaintop and in the valley. The gospel is true. Preach the gospel to yourself. Shame and guilt don't have the final word. Your sin, death doesn't have the final word. The gospel does. Jesus does. Declare it to yourself, declare it to your family. Declare the gospel over your marriage. Declare the gospel over your kids. Declare the gospel over your parents. Uh, Declare the gospel over your school. Declare the gospel over your workplace. Declare the gospel over your church. Declare the gospel over your community. Declare the gospel over our state. Declare the gospel over our country and over the world. It's the gospel that keeps us safe from the enemy. The gospel. Declare the gospel. How many of you, by show of hands, would say that you are aware of a battle you are in right now with the enemy? Just by show of hands. You could raise your hand and say, yes. Would you look around? I just need you to know something. You're not alone in the battle. You're not alone. The enemy hasn't just picked you off. We must declare the gospel in our battles. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. <clears throat> I think in many ways, I just, I want to give you, hey, go do this, do this Bible study, look at this app and do this, and I just feel like we can't. It's not where we are. I want you to hear, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. I want you to hear, for grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a work of God, lest any man should boast. I want you to hear that God has not given us the spirit of slavery to fall, or fear to fall back into slavery, but he has given us the spirit of adoption, of sonship, that we might declare Abba, Daddy, Father. I want you to hear that nothing can separate you from the love of God, neither 
life or death, famine or persecution, sword, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Father, this morning, may we be a people settled and satisfied in the good news of the finished work of Jesus. Not a people desperate to achieve or to do more or to try harder to white knuckle our way to some kind of satisfaction and freedom, but that you would bring us to find rest through repentance in the gospel. In Isaiah chapter 30, God used the prophet Isaiah to tell the story of of your people who are chasing other things never once satisfied. May that not be true of us today. May you be enough. May the gospel be enough. May the gospel be enough to protect us and our marriages and our families and our workplaces and our schools and our church. May it be enough for us today. We rest today in the good news that Jesus has paid it all for me and for my spouse, for me and for my kids, for me and for my boss. It's enough. May we stand firm in it today. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul wraps up the book of Ephesians in this way. He says, peace be to the brothers, to the church, and love with faith from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all of you who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible or love unending, love unstainable. Grace be with you. We love you. You are dismissed. Go with the gospel. Have a great week.